Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. As we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew this morning, we find ourselves in the middle of the Olivet Discourse, a teaching in which Jesus foretells of the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD. Now, of course, many of us are tempted to view Christ's words in chapter 24 as end of times predictions, led there by popular commentaries, uninspired subheadings. Americanized eschatology, and the fictional circumstances of movies and books. The influence of these extra-biblical sources have had an unbelievable effect on the system of faith applied by those typical 21st century churchgoers. Yet, for most of us, Almost none of our eschatological view are actually rooted in the teachings of Jesus himself. Instead, we tend to base all of our assumptions on the opinion of modern English editors who have inserted their own misguided thoughts into the text. And the Olivet Discourse is a prime Example of just that. By adding their own comments to scripture, editors have convinced countless Bible readers that Jesus' lament over Jerusalem lasted only three verses. Followed by signs of Christ's return, perilous times in general, the glorious return, the parable of the fig tree, which is scarcely mentioned, and a section entitled, Be Ready for His Coming. Those are the notes that appear in my copy of the 1995 New American Standard. And you probably have something very similar in whatever version you have brought with you this morning. The presumptuous musings of men. Printed in larger font and bolder letters than the words that came out of the incarnate mouth of Christ Jesus. And they have misled hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands. Why are those headings there? The Lord's final scriptural instruction makes it clear that there are to be no additions whatsoever to its content. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, Revelation chapter 22, verse 18. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Now we cite that reference to refute the writings of Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon. The apocryphal writings of so-called saints. But are the insertions we see in this morning's text not all the more to the point? Turns out those additions to scripture that we have come to rely upon 
They shouldn't even be there. Because they are not the word of God. They were not inspired by the Holy Spirit. And they're not what this teaching of Christ is about. Instead of allowing those opinions to mislead us, we must focus on the text itself, remembering the original context of this conversation. And when we do, we'll find that Jesus' entire prophecy has a reasonable and observable fulfillment in the destruction of the Jewish temple in the year A.D. 70. Interestingly enough, that was the accepted interpretation of the church for the first 1900 years of its existence. That Jesus was talking here about the events of the temple in direct response to the apostles' question from verse 1 all the way through the prophecy's conclusion. That was the accepted interpretation of the church for the first 1,900 years of its existence which makes anything else, by definition, a new, different, and strange theology. The truth is, in the days leading up to 70 AD, false teachers came, natural disasters occurred, persecution increased, the gospel was proclaimed, the abomination stood, believers fled, tribulation persisted, and the age of Israel came to its end. All these things took place just as Christ said they would while talking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, hours before his own crucifixion. As we considered the first half of Jesus' discourse last week, we came to realize that all of this has a first century Fulfillment. And the same is true of this morning's text as well. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 24. And follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 29. Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. For the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God bless the reading of his word. It turns out no other text in the entire New Testament has garnered more attention from critical scholars and skeptics than this one. Being used to argue against the identity of Christ, the trustworthiness of Scripture, And the truth claims of Christianity as a whole. And sad to say, the skeptics are taking their lead from us. Because as we force this text to fit our personal view of the end, we are questioning the integrity of Jesus' claims too. He says in verse 29... Immediately after the tribulation of those days, clearly referring to the temple event, certain things are going to be observed. We say, Jesus wasn't really talking about those days in particular because I did not observe them. And surely he had some other time of suffering in mind because... I cannot understand how all of these things could have taken place way back when. And so the rationale goes for a non-contextual interpretation of this passage informed more by our individual eschatology than the words that Jesus actually spoke. My hope this morning is that we would put aside our previously held conceptions put aside our culturally influenced eschatology and see the texts as it is. If at the end of our time together, you choose to believe differently than me, that's okay. We can still be friends. (laughs) I simply ask that whatever your conviction, you find it in the comprehensive teaching of scripture, not in assumptions, Not in traditions, not in newspapers or books. Yeah? Let's begin then with the question being asked of Jesus in the beginning of chapter 24. 
We could look even a few verses before that for some context, as we did last week, but this question will suffice. It is, after all, this question that forms the basis for Christ's response. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now you have to understand, Jesus says, that building, pointing to it, and others around it, are coming down. Causing Peter, James, John, Andrew, and others to ask, when? When will these things be? What will the sign occur that they are going to be fulfilled? That is the question. Really the only question on the table at the time. The parallel accounts of this passage make that even more clear. According to Mark, the disciples asked very simply, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Luke records the question in that same manner. Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, based on their inquiry, we know what's going to ensue. A conversation about a singular theme taking place while the group was sitting on the Mount of Olives overlooking and even pointing to the Jewish temple. The only challenge whatsoever to that interpretation is the fact that Matthew's account does include some additional language. He writes in chapter 24, verse 3, When will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Well, hold on a second now. How did one question become three? It seems either a contradiction in Scripture, an improper addition by Matthew, or a really problematic omission on the part of Mark and Luke. How did one question become three? Well, it didn't. Because these are not three different questions. Rather, the same question asked three different ways. I get this every night at Upward Basketball. Undoubtedly, some four or five-year-old will tug on my shirt at some point during the evening and without stopping for a breath, ask me, when is it going to be scrimmage time and when can I put on my penny and when can I go make a hoop? Now, if you don't have any idea what we do at Upward Basketball, you might think these are three random questions haphazardly slapped together. But all the girl wants to know is one thing. When are we going to play the game? That's all she was asking. And so to answer her, I only had to give one single response. 
We have to recognize there's a good likelihood Matthew was writing this after the temple had already come down. And to him, all three aspects of that question found their fulfillment at the exact same time. When will these things in the temple happen? What will be the sign of your coming to judge the temple? And when will be the end of the temple age? It's clear from historical and textual criticism that disciples asked only about one thing. And they received only one response to their inquiry. A response all about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, an event which was reasonable, contextual, and observable by those whom he originally addressed. So how do we understand everything that's being described here? Particularly as it relates to this peculiar and fantastic imagery that we see. Well, first, as we read in verse 29, Jesus tells of a grand celestial shakeup that will accompany this event. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, the reason that people believe Jesus suddenly and without notice changes subjects here is because of the language in this particular verse. I mean, it sure sounds like end of the world kind of stuff, doesn't it? And many have spent their lives aimlessly looking up into the sky to see when these calamities will occur. But this kind of cosmic wording is not at all original to Jesus and certainly doesn't predict our last days on the earth. Now, his reference to the fall of heaven is part of a long-standing prophetic tradition used to convey the serious nature of such events. In fact, this exact language was used by prophets to describe God's judgment of corrupt nations. That's why you see those words in all capital letters in most of your English versions of the Bible, telling us they are not original to Christ at all. In fact, 700 years earlier, Isaiah said in regard to the destruction of Babylon, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Ezekiel brought much the same message, this time about the judgment of Egypt. When I extinguish you, he says, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Joel uses that language in his prophecy. So too does Amos while speaking about the invasion of Israel by the army of Assyria. Nobody would suggest that these men were speaking of the world's end several millennia off into the future. They were merely using their prophetic voice to paint a picture of the severity, the brutality, 
the bleakness of the judgment that God had in store. It will be so oppressive and complete, he tells them. It will be as though the sky is falling down all around them, to use language that is more common in our modern tongue. Jesus is telling his first century Jewish followers that the tribulation that will come to Jerusalem will be on that grand a scale. As Israel has now proven her corruption and brought herself under the wrath of God. You see? And it turns out there was a grand celestial shakeup in 70 AD. Along with the coming of the Son of Man. As Jesus says in verse 30, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. I realize to those of us raised in the 20th and 21st century American church, this is a tripping point. Because we have been taught to see this exclusively in reference to the end times. And I suppose some of us actually expect to gaze up into the heavens and see a white poofy cloud driven across the horizon by Jesus. Who stops periodically to say hello. But that is not the picture given to us here. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of a God who comes with the clouds. A God who rides on the clouds. A God who is manifest in the clouds. The Lord said to Moses, I will appear in a cloud over the Holy of Holies. The Lord told Solomon he would dwell in the midst of a thick cloud. And God has said any number of times he will appear on or in a cloud, either to reveal his glory or to bring forth his wrath. See, we tend to think of Christ on the clouds as a one-time thing, reserved exclusively for our final hour. But by reading the Old Testament, we're reminded this exact same thing has happened Before, Isaiah says in chapter 19, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. That's a good number of years ago, friends. (laughs) The Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence because that's what the cloud represents and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And long before Jesus ever talked about the Son of Man coming on the clouds, the prophet spoke of a God who comes on the clouds in judgment. And so having a great appreciation for this as first century Jews, I can assure you the disciples would not have been expecting to physically see the Son of Man riding across the skyline. But rather that Christ's presence would be thick. That it would be dense. That it would be unmistakable at the time of Israel's judgments. 
that is far more consistent with the language of the Old Testament and the context of this conversation and the words of the prophets who have come before. Prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, or even Malachi, who said, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will draw near to you for judgment. Well, just as prophecy indicates, the Son of Man will come to the temple on a cloud of judgment. And then, as we see in verse 31, the elect will be gathered. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, we are told. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, one from one end of the sky to the other. Though many interpret this as the future rapture of the church, the language is inconsistent with other so-called depictions. And even people who believe in a rapture find it difficult to make a connection between their theology and this text. In fact, one of the leading theological voices of rapture theology, J. Vernon McGee, said in regard to Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, the verse that we just read, this is not about the rapture of the church. No, it turns out God spoke about gathering his scattered people to him all the time. Calling them to himself through judges, deliverers, prophets, and scribes. When Moses says in Deuteronomy, the Lord your God will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you, we don't assume a rapture. When God says in Jeremiah, behold, I will gather them out of the lands to which I have driven them, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. We don't say, there is the rapture of the church. In fact, even if you do believe in a rapture, well, sound study would force you to find indications of it elsewhere because it cannot be found in this particular text. See, the word angel, as we read it in our English translations, it comes from the word angelos, meaning one who carries forth the message of God. Truly, that's what an angel does when speaking, no doubt. And yet that same word has often been used to describe the work of other messengers also. Jesus calls John the Baptist an angelos, though I think we would all agree he was not himself an angel. Luke uses that same word in reference to the disciples. Well, James says the spies who visited Rahab were angelos too. Well, given the context of what Jesus is saying then, I would contend this is not about angels coming down from heaven to whisk believers away. But the idea that Christ is sending out his messengers to the corners of the earth to gather together, assemble and unite the church. Wouldn't that soon be their charge anyway? 
to go into all the nations, to the remotest parts of the earth, from this corner to that one, proclaiming Christ, planting churches, and as Paul would say sometime later, presenting the elect back to the Lord. If you look closely at the Greek grammar, you will find that the number one synonym for the word angelos is apostolos or the apostles. And so as one theologian expressed it, when Jerusalem is reduced to ashes and that wicked nation cut off, then shall the Son of Man send his apostles out with the trumpet of the gospel to gather his elect from the corners of the earth so that God shall not be without his church. Huh? The celestial shakeup, the presence of Christ, the gathering of the elect, all took place in the immediate aftermath of the temple falling. And then, in order to remove any ambiguity that might still exist in regard to its timing, Jesus says in verses 32 to 34, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, disciples of the first century, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, I realize a lot of what we are working through is new this morning. And the Old Testament references can take some time to digest. But this is clear as day. And there's just no getting around it. This generation means the one that Jesus is talking to. And all these things means all these things. Granted, I have heard some pretty interesting explanations from people who want to push all these things off to the end. But that's like trying to shove a square peg in a round hole It just doesn't fit. A generation is recognized scripturally as a time period of 40 years. Jesus is speaking to these disciples in 30 AD. The temple comes down in AD 70. 70 minus 30. Is this not clear enough? (laughs) Over. And over and over again, Jesus speaks with immediacy to this generation. Not ours. (laughs) Back in chapter 23, verse 36, he says, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Again in verse 38, he says to the inhabitants of first century Jerusalem, Your house is being left to you desolate. Not mine. We see that same reference several times in chapter 24 along with a call for the disciples to ready themselves because for them it is on the immediate 
horizon. Now, there's no doubt all of these things would happen within the 40-year generation of those living at the time that Jesus spoke. And still, he says in verse 36, that the exact hour is unknown. Again, it is somewhat inconceivable to me to think that this is end times related. Because I do not believe, nor should you, that the risen, ascended, glorified Christ is still lacking some of the knowledge of God. If you have been taught to believe that, I would examine carefully your Christology because you have just made Jesus a lesser God. Scripture says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So even as he sits on a throne at his right hand, the father still withholds information from the son about things he himself will be doing? Not a chance. Not a chance. No, the time that is unknown to Christ is not his return to the earth. At the end of all things, the time that is unknown to Christ is the exact date of the temple's destruction as Jesus sits there speaking to his disciples in 30 AD. Because as a man, he had restricted his own omniscience in regard to such things. I believe that's why he says back in verse 20, pray that these events would not occur in winter or on a Sabbath, because he does not himself know with that great of precision. He knows it's in this generation, probably even knows the year. But as he sits and talks to them, he does not know the day or the season. Similar, I suppose, to the understanding that Noah would have had when the Lord spoke of judging the world in his day. Jesus compares those two situations in verses 37 to 39 of our text. Telling the disciples that the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they, people, were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, carrying on with life until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Noah knew that judgment was coming, and he knew it was coming soon. But even as he was making preparations, Noah could not have told his countrymen the hour, the day, or the month. And as with Jesus' words to his disciples here, communicating the exact time frame would have been contrary to the point anyway. Do you see? Indeed, the exact hour is not known by Jesus while he is speaking. And yet, because it was imminent for them, he calls the disciples to be ready. Take a look at verses 42 to 44. Therefore, he says... 
based on what is coming. Be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Contrary to popular opinion, Jesus is not talking to us here. He's talking to Peter, James, John, Andrew, and the others. Jewish believers living in the middle part of the first century. Why would they need to be on the alert if none of the things just described are going to take place for another 2,000, 2,500, or 3,000 years? In that case, the word is not be alert, stand ready, or take up your guard. The word is relax. This isn't going to happen for a really, really long time. How is that an encouragement? How is that a challenge? How is it a watchword for those to whom Jesus is speaking? Friends, you could take this text and twist it all around, pull it from its context and make it say whatever you want to say. But if you apply the same interpretive principles to this text as you do everywhere else, you will find that the Olivet Discourse is not speaking of the world's end. It's not talking about Christ's final return. It's talking about the destruction of the Jewish temple in the year 70 AD. Now that is not to say that there won't be a final coming. In fact, it's possible that a comparative or analogous set of circumstances may be in store at the final return of Christ. But that is not the primary intention of this teaching here. Yet, despite all that we have just reviewed, we're still left to wonder if there is some tangible point for you and I today. We're told all scripture is God-breathed and useful and profitable for things like teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. So beyond the information that Jesus provides, the historical outlook that we now can have, is there some reason that I need to know this? Is some change that I need to make as a result of the things that I see playing out here in the past? Well, as with last week, I believe Christ is speaking here both prophetically and pastorally, advising his disciples how they should live as believers in the wake of chaos and confusion. Advice that we still ought to heed ourselves. First, we recognize that the elect of God will be reached. That was stated emphatically and truthfully, declaratively. And that gives us comfort and assurance. And yet, at the same time, we're called to do the gathering now. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, verse 31. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Contextually, this is talking about the apostles being sent out. And they were to start gathering the church, those elect of God, 
together. But in a very real sense, well, we're charged with this exact same task today. To find ourselves in and amongst the peoples of the world, proclaiming Christ, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, seeing them enter the kingdom of heaven. And regardless of your eschatology, this is your job today. And it starts in about 10 minutes when we walk out those doors that you would go forth as ministers of the gospel to build Christ's church. The elect of God will be reached, true, and we rely on that, but the expectation is for you and I to take an active role in its being accomplished. And not only that, we're assured that the word of God will be eternal, but at the same time, we are called to trust it now. Verse 35, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. It's all temporary, but my words will not pass away. And the disciples were about to see everything they had ever known come to ruin. Their ancestral heritage gone, their city burned, their temple destroyed. We come to realize in their calamity that, well, we should already know. All that glitters in this life will surely fade. But not the words of Christ. Or in a broader sense, the word of God. The apostles listening that day were called to trust what Jesus was telling them. To find in them a command, a comfort, and a challenge. You and I are called to that exact same thing. It's not enough to acknowledge some measure of truthfulness in Scripture. You got to trust it. You got to follow it. You got to obey it. We have got to live these words, friends. Because in these eternal words lies our Eternity. Yeah. The elect of God will be reached, but we're called to gather now. The word of God will be eternal, but we're called to trust it now. And as we see in verses 45 to 51, the faithful of God will be ready. But we're called to make preparations now. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This dialogue opens in a a way very similar to the parable of the talents, perhaps more familiar to you. 
As the master of the house leaves and entrusts his servants with something valuable and precious. The question, I suppose, principally, is what will the Lord find you doing? When you die or he returns, what will the Lord find you at work doing? Burying your talent in the ground? Sleeping on the job? Abusing your covenantal privilege? Or will you be standing guard? Watchful. Ready and doing. The disciples were called to be on the alert. To labor in the fields of rejection. To preach in the synagogues of criticism. To live faithfully in a fallen world. Because judgment was real. Judgment was coming. Well, this you can fast forward. Because today, as sure as I stand here, we can say judgment is real. And eventually, judgment is is coming. So, no matter your theology, no matter your view of the temple or the end of times, stands to reason that you are called to make yourself ready also. Practicing love, joy, peace, and patience. Studying to show yourself approved. And persevering right up to the end. Because come what will, when it will, we know that blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity once again to gather. The opportunity once again to consider your word and all that it means. And I pray, Lord, through some weighty material, some difficult language, Lord, that you would help us through the power of your Holy Spirit to see the truth. Lord, that we could put our paranoia aside for a second. Lord, that we would be able to put down the newspaper clippings and those fantastic headlines that spark us to some alert. Lord, that we would be guided by your word and your truth. Because there is more enough there than we can possibly master. So Lord, thank you for your teaching. I pray that you would instill in us a desire to be ready, to always be faithfully doing so that whenever it is that you decide to culminate these end things, we would be found faithful. And we would know that blessing that comes to the faithful servant. Thank you for this time. Continue to be exalted in our hearts and minds, we pray. Amen and amen.
trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue 